This is The Guardian. Get ahead of postage rate increases this year with Stamps.com. It's like your own personal post office. Sign up with promo code PROGRAM for a four-week trial plus free postage and a free digital scale. No long-term commitments or contracts. That's Stamps.com code PROGRAM. Hello and welcome to the Guardian Football Weekly. Today we look ahead to groups G and H. Brazil, they're just pure World Cup. How good are they this time? We'll get the expert view from Rio. Not as straightforward a group as it might appear with Mitrovic and the effervescent calves of Shakiri. Tricky games in Serbia and Switzerland while Cameroon are now spearheaded by Brentford's Brian and Bremo. Group H sees the rematch of Uruguay and Ghana. Luis Suarez is still there. Just imagine if he could punch one off the line again. Portugal will hope Cristiano Ronaldo's as up for this as he is for hammering Manchester United. While could Sun Min be the masked hero for South Korea. Also today, in the last of our specials, we'll discuss women's rights in Qatar. All that, plus your questions. And that's today's Guardian Football Weekly. On the panel today, Nick Ames, just before he heads off to Doha, welcome. Hello, Max. Uh, Jonathan Faduba, welcome. Hello. And Barry Glendenning back for just one of the previews. I mean, injury concerns. What's happened? You fell off the stage at the FSAs, did you? I didn't fall off the stage. I tripped on my way down a ramp from the stage. I hasten to add, this was very early in the evening, right. and I was not. It was not a drunken misadventure. It was just okay. me being a clumsy fool. Are the awards? Are the awards too heavy this time? They are quite heavy. Yeah, right, okay. but. Um, Yes, it was a good night. Another good night from the AFSA, so thanks to them. Um, Johnny says, how does Barry feel about an honorary England supporter? Um, uh, uh, that is, you have England in the sweepstake, don't you? You must be delighted. Yeah, I'd, um, I think when I made my choice, uh, there were 29 envelopes left, so needless to say, <laughs> I got England. Marvellous stuff. Well, look, let's start with Group G. Uh, and uh, Brazil, Serbia, Switzerland, Cameroon in this one. Uh, before we hear from this panel, uh, I spoke to South American football expert, Rio resident Tim Vickery, and this is what he had to say. Um, okay then, Tim, uh, Brazil are ranked number one in the world. Um, their group seems okay. Uh, is this their time? You know, the group doesn't seem quite as okay as it maybe did a few months ago. You know, there's uh, one or two nerves jangling as, as they look at the... The, the recent form of, of Serbia and Switzerland. And sure, they're, yeah. they're bang in against European opposition. All the other South American teams get an Asian team first up, you know, and uh, and South America's record against Asia recently is very, very good indeed. Whereas Brazil are confronted with a bogeyman on every Brazil campaign since they last won in 2002 has ended as soon as they come up against a, Euro a Western European side in the knockout stages. So uh, there, there'll be a few nerves. Why do you, why do you think that is? It, we're getting deep here, aren't we? Because the Western European domination of club football is easy to, to explain. The Western European domination of national team football, I don't think is as easy to explain. Uh, sometimes over here, they'll say, oh, the, the, the uh, um, Champions League and so on, the Premier League is only good because of the South American players. Well, hang on a minute. You take out all those South American players and it's still Europe that, that's winning the World Cup. And, and providing mm. most of the teams who are getting getting to the to the business end of of the World Cup, 
in the golden ears, uh, era of Brazil, in 58 to 70, they had a lead, uh, had a massive lead in terms of physical preparation. And they had a tactical lead as well. In 58, they introduced the back four. 70, it's a, it's a, a pioneer of modern 4-2-3-1. Um, and the physical preparation was fantastic. The last two that they won, 94 and 2002, I don't think were particularly good World Cups, especially 2002. Uh, and they had balance, excellent physical preparation, and enough ind individual flair to get them over the line. Those things have not been good enough since. Uh, one of the worrying things for them is the way that Europe has discovered how to produce South American-style players. And you look at that fateful uh, quarterfinal four years ago in Russia, Belgium against, against Brazil. I think Brazil were a bit unlucky. I think that they deserved... It was the best game in the tournament. I think Brazil deserved the right to take mm. that one into extra time and they would have had the, the momentum. But who's the most stereotypical South American player on the field? Eden Hazard. You know, low centre of gravity, magnificent in one-against-one situations. So Europe seems to be learning how to produce that kind of player. That, that, that's worrying. But I think this time round, I think both Brazil and Argentina will, will, will take some stopping. They're, they're in it to win it, both of them. Yeah. Uh, the, the attacking talent of Brazil is immense, isn't it? Yes. And it's come together just in the last year and a half. Um, since their last defeat, the final of the Copa America to Argentina uh, in July of last year, everything has kind of come together. Um, that generation of attacking talent and Vinicius Jr. exploding as a world star. Hafinha, I've never seen anyone step into the, the Brazil side and make it look as easy as Hafinha. Richarlison, absolutely bang in form. Neymar, obviously, is totally focused and this is the moment which will define his international career. He's got a sweet thing going with Lucas Paqueta. So individually, that they look good and collectively, things have looked good as well. Um, they haven't looked like conceding goals. There's been games out there where the goalkeeper can take a deck chair uh, and the attacking talent seems to be firing together. So uh, there are very, very solid grounds for optimism. I mean, in a deck chair or not, Alisson's obviously brilliant in goal, isn't he? And, you know, the, the strength and depth in that position yep. as well. In front of him, Thiago Silva, is is he still the absolute linchpin? I mean, we see how well he's playing in the Premier League and it seems ridiculous for someone of his age. The linchpin is Marquinhos. The coach will admit that he made a mistake dropping Marquinhos on the eve of, of the last World Cup. You know, you, you drop your quickest centre-back, you're asking for trouble and Belgium punish them for that. So Marquinhos is, is the defensive linchpin. It's been a big call for them who plays alongside him because coming out of Russia, they didn't expect Thiago Silva to still be around and they've been preparing Eda Militão. Now, that's gone even better than they expected. When the World Cup qualifiers that Marquinhos played with Militão, they didn't concede a single goal. And Militão has a mistake in him, but his recovery speed is remarkable. So if you're going to play a high line, that's very, very useful. But they have a reverence for Thiago Silva. It's a coaching staff like most Brazilian coaching staffs. They do all the numbers of the physical preparation stuff. And uh, you say to them, well, hang on a minute, Thiago Silva plays in the middle of a three for Chelsea and you're playing him in, in, in a four. And they come back with the stats that show that he covers more ground at greater speed for Chelsea than he does for Brazil. Now, I come back with that saying, well, doesn't that tell you something about the, the, the games that Brazil have had? When it really counts, he's going to be put under pressure because when they lost the final of the Copa America, 
where did Argentina score the goal? The space between the left back and Thiago Silva. Now, part of that may be Thiago Silva's age and also they can't press quite as well with Thiago Silva as with Eda Militao. And this is a Brazil side that likes to press. But also, you know, he spends his time in the middle of a three. He's got a left-sided centre-back outside him to deal with things there. Mm-hmm. So the movements are different in a, in, a back, in, a, in a back four. So if, if, if I'm playing Brazil, that's where I'm going to attack. They can switch sides. They can, if, you know, the Marquinhos and Thiago Silva can, can switch sides if they think they're particularly vulnerable down, down one flank, which I think gets back to your, your question that, you know, Marquinhos is, is, is the linchpin. And, and Thiago Silva, well, he's, he's gonna, there's no doubt about it. He's going to be targeted. Uh, and it's going to be fascinating to see if he can justify the faith of uh, Brazil's coaching staff. Um, Neymar occasionally uh, isn't loved by everybody in his squad. Uh, at club level, what's it? What's it like at Brazil? I think he's very popular. I think he's very popular with his with, with his teammates. Um, underneath it all, I think there's probably quite a nice bloke there. That there's there's quite a nice lad. Obviously, been spoilt by mm-hmm. his surroundings. I mean, he's been hot housed since he was uh, since well before he was he was an adolescent even. Um, but uh, he, he seems to be extremely popular amongst his, his Brazil teammates. Um, and, and is it as simple as Casemiro sits and then everybody else in front of him goes? Within the same idea of play, they've got three little tweaks, which they do with Lucas Paqueta. He's a joker in the pack, his versatility. And in those three tweaks, he plays three different positions and he can play a fourth if, if, if you want him to. Um, Fredji is, is the second man in midfield, although in their most attacking lineup, that's Paquita. Paquita sits in for Fredji, which does front load the team. There's a debate going on inside the Brazilian coaching staff whether they should start off like that or not. But it's not everyone going because the role that they have for the fullbacks now is very different from the role that you might traditionally associate with Brazilian fullbacks. They don't want Cafu and Roberto Carlos bumming up and down the line. No, the, 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 uh, the line is, we don't want Liverpool fullbacks. We want Man City fullbacks. Right, okay. So that's why they can still pick Daniel Alves, although he's going to be a reserve, I, I imagine. Um, so the, the role of the fullbacks now is, is, yes, to go as an element of surprise, but mainly to tuck in, make the extra man in midfield, hold the defensive line and construct from deep. So that, that's a role that needs more brain power than, than, than lung power. Um, and finally, like everybody obviously likes to, you know, plot the route to the final. When did Brazil meet Argentina? Is that, is that the semi-final? It looks like that would happen. Possibly, but they don't do that. Are they not? How, how do you they think, just beat everyone. Yeah, well, no, how do you think you, you win five World Cups? You do it one at a time. You know, so you go in, you go into the tournament saying we've got seven left, we've got six left, we've got five left, and then you, you, you count them down. There's, uh, there'll be none of that going on. Right. That should teach the English a thing or two about how to do this. Um, and, and just look at the other South American teams. We've covered them in other previews. Do you feel it's Messi's time? Like if, if you had to take a punt on Brazil or Argentina for this, who, who would you pick? Um, I would go with Brazil. Because I fancy Brazil's defensive unit more than Argentina's. Uh, and Brazil have more top-class goalkeepers and 
I would take Brazil's centre-backs over Argentina's centre-backs any day. Argentina's defensive stats are, are terrific. It's two goals in the last 14. Uh, although they're just about to play today. Um, although I'm not sure the Arab Emirates are going are gonna to put too much of a dent in that. And it don't, really doesn't matter if, if, if they do. The defence has improved out of all measure since Martinez of Villa and Romero of Tottenham came into the side together in, in June of last year. But you still think under pressure, there have been times in Argentina have had to, that they've really been defending at full stretch. I find it hard to imagine Otamendi as a, as, at this stage of his career as a, as, as a World Cup um, winning centre-back. Also, I think Argentina have suffered a real blow with the injury to, to Lo Celso yeah, because he worked yeah. so well in that team. So well. And the, the heartbeat of the team is the midfield trio. You know, Paredes is playing the first ball out with quality. DePaul giving thrust. And then Lo Celso slipping. It's got such a sweet thing going with Messi. Um, and uh, they're getting the ball to Messi close to the opposing goal where he can either do something individually or, or combine with either... Lautaro Martinez or Di Maria. So uh, quite how they're going to replace Lo Celso, I don't know. There's some good players to come in and you can switch the balance a number of ways. But that little partnership has gone and I don't think they can, they, they can bring that back. Um, but I, I think they're very, very attractive to watch and I think they can, they can do some serious, serious damage in this tournament. But if you're going to press me, Brazil or Argentina, I think, Defence is so important in winning titles and I would back up Brazil's defence over Argentina's. Uh, there'll be a bit more of Tim later when we discuss Uruguay. Uh, the panel haven't heard what Tim said, but, you know, it is Brazil. You are allowed views on Brazil. Jonathan, how how do you rate them? What are you excited to see from them? Well, I'm convinced that whatever Tim Vickery says is, is definitely worth taking seriously. Um, so, <laughs> although I've not heard it, I, I 100% agree with pretty much all of it. Um, but... Yeah, Brazil, I think, I'm sure Tim probably has mentioned this, but I think the focus will be on around Neymar and kind of like the legacy play for Neymar. Can he kind of um, spearhead them to a World Cup? I think his position in the pantheon of sort of Brazilian greats is probably on the line in, in this tournament to a certain extent. I think people have downtrodden him over the last four or five years. His choices, you know, choices on and off the field, uh, obviously to go to PSG and People may be feeling that he he took an easy option to a certain extent, but I think with Brazil, he's 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 like the main man, isn't he? And this is where he he really takes on that burden and is out steps out of the shadow of Messi and, and has that chance to kind of well, he can even overtake Pele's goal record, I believe, in this tournament. So yeah, but I, I, I'm not sure if they're going to win it, but their team does look sort of quite functional rather than necessarily that place with flair if you know what I mean they're not they're not like the Brazil of old where it's like samba and dancing and everyone's you know looking class I think Fred is in the team for example Casemiro but I think they have that kind of weird blend of like European kind of like solidity but at the same time a little bit of flair that you might need Anthony's tricks and things like that so um, I think they'll go far but I'm not I'm not sure they'll win it I like the idea of Anthony just spinning round and round in the World Cup final when he could play an easy pass to Neymar for a certain goal it's interesting actually Nick that you know, when you talk about that, like, this could be Neymar's legacy and it could be Messi's legacy. And you sort of sometimes forget that absolute ludicrous pressure that these individual humans appear to be under. Yeah. What more do these people have to achieve on a football pitch to leave a legacy? And um, I, remember, I remember being at the 
Argentina versus France quarterfinal in 2018 in Kazan. And obviously Argentina didn't really turn up, but they still lost 4-3 and ran it quite close at the end. And all the talk afterwards was, this is a tragedy for Messi. It must be VM for Messi. So obviously back four years later, and we and we hope very much it's not VM for Messi, but it's, it, 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 it does make a mockery, doesn't it? of the idea that a tournament more than anything is what you need a team for and is what you need to be tightly bound for and not like France 2010 or something like that, just sort of tight, um, tightly knit together, no, no major stars perhaps, and just all in it, hopefully getting through to the final. And I think it's human nature now, isn't it, to put a burden on the shoulders of superstars or individuals. And I, and I think we're all going to be doing it over the next month. I don't think any of this is going to not fall into that trap but yeah it's 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 quite reductive and certainly in Messi's case probably more than Neymar's case it it does belittle a bit what they've already done but I will say that I would be delighted if we're sat here in five weeks time whatever and Messi has won a world cup because it would shut everyone up and also he would deserve it so you know uh, Barry would you be delighted if, if Neymar lifted the trophy um I wouldn't say I'd be Delighted for him personally. I'd be delighted for Brazil as a collective. I mean, every World Cup is important for Brazil, but I think this one is particularly important because Bolsonaro is is gone. He's no longer the leader of Brazil, and he sort of hijacked the the national team jersey. As you know, it became synonymous with him rather than and what he stood for. His horrible policies rather than. The players who who wear it so proudly, and I'm will be you know so they need to try and reclaim that jersey for them. It's our jersey. It's not his. So I think that's kind of important. And I I wonder because there are quite a few Bolsonaro fans in that squad, Brazil squad, and quite a few who have been quite outspoken against him. And I I wonder will that be a problem in in the politics become a problem in the squad? Maybe maybe it won't. I might be thinking about it far too much but um so yeah i do think this is a very important tournament for brazil they haven't won it for 20 years now um i think they could win it quite possibly and i i wouldn't mind seeing them win it uh they've they've only lost five out of 76 matches playing under tite and um but two of those matches crucially was it was the quarterfinal against belgium in the last world cup and uh uh last year's Copa America final against Argentina so that those both hurt but um yeah I'd, I'd well it's silly to say of course I'd have them among my favorites <laughs> that's excellent insight um uh, uh well look it isn't I, I said to Tim it seems a straightforward group but then actually he put me right because Serbia Jonathan and Switzerland are both good teams and you know on their day they've got good players they're you know they they could both cause Brazil problems. You can't imagine Brazil not getting out of the group, but like it's going to be difficult for either one of Serbia and Switzerland to get through, given that. Yeah, it's going to be hard, hard for them. I mean, Brazil kind of tend to uh, find themselves pl- playing Switzerland, don't they, um, somehow <laughs> in World Cups. And also, I think in the last World Cup, did they play um, Serbia as well? So they, they, they've got history of playing both of them. Um in the last one, obviously, Coutinho was 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 in the Brazil squad and, and scored in uh, scored against Switzerland and uh, and I think Paulinho scored against Serbia. So obviously, there's, there's been a lot of change since then. I don't think 
Switzerland are kind of like uh, as good as they maybe were in the past. So I think they'll be a bit more straightforward to, to get through. I think Brazil will qualify. I, I don't really see um, them having too too many troubles. I, fi- I find that this, this, this group kind of, I think it will go in a fairly straightforward way. I think Switzerland and Serbia is probably the game that might might decide it. As much as I want Cameroon to, I'd like Cameroon to sort of progress, I feel as though this might be a group where Brazil kind of top it fairly comfortably and then it's the Switzerland-Serbia game that, that, that decides it. Um, let's talk about Serbia a little bit, Nick. Uh, you know, Mitrovic, Vahovic, that's, that's, that is, you know, Mitrovic is fun at a World Cup, I imagine. Yeah, I think um, we often look at Serbia and we think mercurial a bit, don't we? We think of very talented, technical, maybe slightly temperamental sides, maybe not always the most disciplined. And these, I'm, I'm sure I'll be told by people, are maybe cliches, but I think they also have a strong basis in fact. But you look at the team they've got now, um, Petsy Stojkovic has come in and he's really instilled a discipline. He's got them working tactically very hard. He's got them pressing very well, I think, in a, in a very coherent way, which we haven't really seen, I don't think, from Serbia teams before. And then we've got an attack and an attacking midfield that is, I mean, it's maybe not up there with like Brazil, but it's, it's almost up there with anyone, if everyone is fit. I mean, Dusan Vlahovic, one of the best strikers in Europe, um, has has done fairly well, I would say, since stepping up to Juventus. I think he's had a bit of a knock in, in recent weeks, which is a bit of a concern, but he should be okay. Um, Mitrovic, who, who I think most of us wonder whether he would ever make that leap between outstanding championship versus not quite up to it. Premier League has, has absolutely bridged it this season, been fantastic. Also got an injury, hasn't he? I think so. We've, which I think might be a bit more serious. So they're hoping he's fit. And then if, if either of them can't make it, you've got Luka Jovic, who's showing signs of a revival after that slightly torrid move to Real Madrid um, up there as well. And then you've got Milinkovic Savic from Lazio, wonderful playmaker behind them. You've got Dusan Tadic, who seems still to get better and better at sort of whatever he is at 34, 35. On the left, you've got Kostic, who's very, very, very speedy, skillful wing-back or winger. You've got a lot of options there um, there now for Serbia. And I think for the first time, you've got balance too. And I think, you know, I think were they not in this group, you would be potentially tipping them for, you know, certainly quarterfinals. The issue, as I think Jonathan has, has just hinted at, is can they get past Switzerland? And they obviously played that climactic game, didn't they, in 2018 when when they lost to the death and there was the, the Albanian eagle controversy and all that. Um, and we're going to see a bit of a repeat of, of that showdown. And basically, the winner between those two will go through. I, I, um, I actually think Switzerland... Sorry, you've asked, you've asked me about Serbia. No, no, carry on. I, but, but, um, but I think it's, it's, um, it's going to be neck and neck because, well, I think Serbia have the slightly flashier names and uh, and are more potent on paper and probably man for man should take it. I, th- I think Switzerland have improved in recent years. I think it was very important for their confidence that they broke a bit of a glass ceiling, didn't they, of the Euros. I, I was um, reporting at the game in Bucharest when they beat France and I remember sending a very like, manic, wired update to Football Weekly after that one. Um, and uh, and then they were quite unlucky against Spain in the semis, and they've gone on and beaten Spain and Portugal since. And um, I, 
I think they play at a slightly higher tempo than they used to. They've got a, a midfielder now in, in Janet Shaka, who, whatever people thought of him before, they need to forget it because he's playing the best football of his career and can maybe add something further forward that he maybe wasn't doing for his national team either before. Good forward in Embolo, we could go on. Um, so, I don't know, I, um, I, I actually think when I look at this, this group, this quartet, it's actually almost the most interesting in the tournament for me. And I wouldn't be, I wouldn't be stunned into silence if either one of Serbia and Switzerland took something off of Brazil. I, I think it's very, very tight. And I think it's a shame that one of those three teams, almost certainly Serbia and Switzerland, although we should come to Cameroon, um, is going to miss out. Um, Barry, it's, you wonder with Granit Xhaka, you know, when he was playing well for Switzerland and terribly for Arsenal, Arsenal was getting furious. Do you think if he plays well for Arsenal, he therefore has to be shit for Switzerland? Is that how it works? I don't think he will be. Um, he's, he's having the time of his life at the moment. Um, as as Nick said, and he, he, you know, he's clearly held in very high regard. Um, I think it, it is brilliant that the Serbia-Switzerland game is the final, like they meet in their their respective third games because of the political edge and that that one is, one of them will almost certainly go out on the back of that game and it's it's going to be tasty, one would imagine. Yeah. Uh, on to Cameroon, uh, Jonathan. You know, they, they've got some good, you know, Zambor and Guisa is playing well for Napoli, isn't it? You know, and Buemo at Brentford, who I confess I didn't know was playing for Cameroon until quite a short time ago. Um, uh, I and- don't think he did either, Max. <laughs> <laughs> well, he only that's... declared very recently, I believe. <laughs> well, as long as he knew before I did, I think it's probably important. Um, but we seem to be writing them off completely here, Jonathan. We are. It does seem like we're writing them off completely. And I think that's probably slight, slightly unfair. Um, but I do think they have a few issues sort of going into the into the tournament. They, they've not been in amazing form. I know it's, it's kind of only just friendlies and things like that. Um, but they struggled in obviously World Cup qualifiers, um, lost out uh, to Algeria in the end, and then of course um, the recent friendlies they've kind of lost to Uzbekistan, drew with Jamaica, so they're not in amazing form. I think the injury to um, Frank Zambonguisa, who you just mentioned there, is like a, a bit of an issue for them. Uh, can he be fit? He's been in such good form for Napoli, and and I think he really will be kind of like the midfield driving force if he can, if he can get himself hundred percent fit. Um, got up front, they've obviously got Chupa Moting, uh, who you know is 33 now, but still quite highly rated, even even a buy. And I think they they're trying to re- extend his contract. I think he's he's done quite well, probably better than anyone would have thought um, there. Um, and of course, uh, Vincent Abubakar is kind of like the, the 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 man, the myth, the legend there for them. You know, he was a top scorer at, at the African Nations, uh, African Cup of Nations in earlier in 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 2020. One, but it was 2022, if you know what I mean. So uh, earlier this year, basically, um, and he he'll be the man that everyone looks for for them to fire the goals. I just think that defensively, you know, Nick mentioned it there in terms of the, the firepower, for example, that Serbia have with with, with Mitrovic and and you know they've got some some really good players. With, with Switzerland, I think the issue is kind of Cambrian and Bolo be relied upon for goals, but that that for me, I think the the problem with Cameroon is can they keep keep those teams out all, all of them have fairly decent firepower obviously Brazil are Brazil um, Serbia have two really excellent forwards and then of course um, Switzerland on their day you know if Imbolo is firing if they're on it then they, they can score as well so I just feel like Cameroon holding them out especially maybe from set pieces um, is potentially an issue for them 
Um, I think that's absolutely spot on, uh, Jonathan. I think one thing that Cameroon do do that we don't necessarily see from a lot of the other African teams at the moment, a lot of whom set up in, in quite a low block, I think, they do press high and they do push up with energy. And we saw that a lot in in, in AFCON um, a few months ago. They they were probably one of only sort of two or three teams that played a really high high um, high pressing game and tried to really seize an, an, an early initiative in games. And it often worked for them. Now, I don't necessarily think they've got the quality throughout the squad to make that stick this time. Um, and I definitely think the defensive issues are there. But I do think we might see a bit more of a high energy, high, in, high impact game than we might have expected from them. And it might mean they at least ruffle a few feathers. Baz? Um, Samuel Eto'o is the head of the Cameroonian Football Federation now. And he has predicted that they will reach the final and play Morocco in it. So, wow. so that's worth bearing in mind. Um, <laughs> but like they, they haven't won a World Cup game in twenty years. Uh, they've only got out of the group once in eight attempts, and it's probably a cliche, but that they're renowned for having disharmony in the squad. And Joel Matip famously refuses to play for them, uh, and he's a big loss, obviously. But he he has said in the past that. Cameroon squad, everyone seems to be more interested in what's in it for them individually than what can we do as a collective. And it will be interesting to see if, if that becomes a concern in this World Cup, as it invariably tends to do. Yeah, I suppose in my mind, it's still 1990. So yeah. I sort of think, wow, they could cause a surprise. Roger Miller's only 60, he's only 71 or something, you know. There is an idea, a connection because Rigobert Song is their manager, so you know, who knows? Could be fun. All right, let's uh, let's end part one, part two. We'll do Group H: Portugal, Ghana, Uruguay, and South Korea. Welcome to part two of the Guardian Football Weekly. So Group H then, Portugal, Ghana, Uruguay, uh, the Korean Republic. Um, before we talk about Ghana versus Uruguay, which is going to be absolutely, well, I, it may be an anticlimax, but it's great that it's happening. Let's talk about Portugal. I guess we have to start, Barry, with Cristiano Ronaldo and just like the timing of his ridiculous interview. Um, and now like everything that's happened, there was a clip I saw on social media of him sort of going up to Jao Cancelo and just sort of like, holding his neck a bit and then people just trying to work out if that's him being a great guy or being awful and you're like oh god we've got so until Portugal go out we've just got this on loop haven't we yes um there's a clip of him and Cancelo and the clip of him and Bruno Fernandes who appeared to be quite dismissive of him when he when he turned up I think this Portugal squad the best possible thing that could happen to them is for Ronaldo to pull a hamstring before the first game and be out of the tournament because they're such a talented squad of players. Uh, they've so much strength and depth, incredible generation of, of talents. And it's going to be all about him. You know, he probably shouldn't start, but he almost certainly will start every game. We've seen in the past him micromanaging the team. Uh, what was in the, the, the final, the Euros final in yeah. 2000? where he he had to go off injured. So he basically took over in the dugout. It was, you know, gesticulating and uh, Fernando Santos, their manager, took a back seat. So uh, much will depend on how Portugal get on, I suspect. Like, they made a mess of their qualifying group. 
they had to go through the qualifiers when they should probably have won the group. And um, it will be all about him, and that will probably cost them. And I think without him, they would be more than good enough to win the tournament. What do you think, Jonathan? I think that is the kind of issue that Portugal have, even ignoring Ronaldo. I think just generally the older members of the squad, they've got a really good crop of young players coming through. And it's kind of that that, that mixture, obviously, the, the manager Santos is kind of, he's got his loyalty maybe to his older his older stalwarts of like, for example, you know, Euro 2016 and, um, you know, past tournaments, basically. So that's that's a concern. And I think, obviously, this, the kind of circus around Ronaldo is is not going to help. Um, you know, you can't imagine him really being dropped for any game, can you? And if, and if he is, you can imagine the, I don't know if he could give an interview to Piers Morgan mid, mid-tournament, but like, you can imagine the kind of, the, the, the tantrums if he doesn't, you know, maybe play uh, X, or, X or Y game, basically. So he, he kind of is going to have to play if he's fit. So, uh, you know, as Barry said, maybe an injury might might kind of make it easier for him to, his minutes to be managed. It's a bit unfortunate because they do have a, like an amazing squad. And, and I, you know, Ronaldo wants to win at the end of the day, in, in fairness to him. He, you know, he, he want nothing more than to win the World Cup. And if he has to miss a few games for it, maybe he'd accept that trade-off as long as he's playing in the final. But <laughs> oh, would he? Would he? I don't know. Would he? What? Exactly. That's that's you the say thing. Portugal will win the final, but you're only getting ten minutes. You're getting that <laughs> brought on an injury time just to wind down the clock. Do you take it, Cristiano? Exactly. And and you know, even if you look at, for example, someone like Bernardo Silva, he he kind of plays out further wide for for Portugal, whereas you know, you'd argue that he's an incredible sort of central midfield. I know he can play in those wide spaces, but he's kind of almost shunted there um, to make way for others. So. It's it's it. I, I like Portugal, but the, the recent form, you know, obviously losing to Spain in in the Nations League, maybe a sort of um, a preemptor to kind of what might come in the latter stages of, of this tournament. Um, one player that I think will maybe have a bit of a standout tournament potentially <clears throat> that I really like is is Nuno Mendes, the left back, and I think he's someone who is someone to keep an eye on. There's not that many kind of say young talents, um, really, that you can hang your hat on and say they're they're going to have breakout tournaments. But I think Nuno Mendes, um, the PSG left-back, 20 years old, I think he's he's already got 16 caps, but he's got a fantastic future. And um, I think he could emerge as one of the top kind of uh, full-backs after this tournament if he if he kind of gets the minutes and, and, and shows what he can do. And Nick, like Rafael Leao as well is, a, is such a talent. Oh, absolutely fantastic talent. And I, I hope he gets unleashed a little bit at this tournament. He's one of those who you want to see get some good game time, isn't he? And just show what he can do. And... I think a lot depends for, for Portugal on how they find that balance, I think, between we've spoken about Ronaldo and his ego and what he brings or doesn't bring, but also defence and attack. They didn't necessarily have it at the last Euros. Um, and I think it, I think it's going to be difficult for them in this tournament. I, I think they'll get through the group stage, but then you look at the second round and the two groups that we're talking about today are paired, aren't they? So they're probably either going to play Brazil or, or, or one of Serbia and Switzerland, both of whom have beaten them very recently and 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 deserve to beat them, and I I just you can't write them off not with the individuals we've been speaking about, but I'm nowhere near as convinced enough about them as as a collective um, to say that we're going to be talking about them beyond the round of sixteen. But I am looking forward to seeing Leo. I I I I, I hope he gets a lot of minutes on the pitch. I think that'd be great. Yeah, um, only three Wolves players in the squad, so. You're signing the wrong Portuguese players. <laughs> will be the conclusion from that. Um, uh, let's talk Uruguay. First off, here's a couple of minutes of Tim Vickery. 
one of the you know the videos that's got me most excited about the World Cup actually is the Uruguay yeah. uh, squad announcement. It was brilliant, and you, you always forget how small a country that is, population wise, right? And and people are always looking for dark horses. They do have some wonderful players. They? they do, they do, and and remember that in two of the last three World Cups, statistically, they were South America's best side. It's an amazing statistic. You know, it's extraordinary. Yeah. They're capable of it this time, but. That balance between the old guard and the new, they haven't achieved it yet. They've been looking for that balance for four years, you know, since they came away from Russia, and they haven't found the, the balance. And there are some huge decisions for the coach there, Diego Alonso, huge decisions for him, for him to take um, about personnel and about the shape of the side because the, the two things are linked. And you mentioned, you know, the generation of midfielders that they've got is terrific. And Valverde is now the most important player in the side. But I always think they're better with three in the central midfield. So you've mm. got Vicino to sit, Bentancourt to knit things together, and Valverde just to just to go and drop his bombs and use that lung power to pop up all over the place. If you play three in midfield in the centre, it's hard to play two up front unless you play a back three. Now, they could play a back three. That might work. That means you've got Diego Godin in restricted space. I mean, Godin's hardly had any football for months. He's, and he's creaking anyway. You know, he's just coming, back, just coming back from knee injuries. He's had like half an hour of football in, in months. So doubts about him. You know, making Araujo of Barcelona absolutely vital. But he's had no football since the end of September when he broke down in the, in the last FIFA date. They've been trying to rush him back. So these things cloud the issue. He has to work out who's fit before he can work out how to put the, 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 the pieces together. And if he does go with three in central midfield and goes with a back four, then it's hard to play the 4-4-2, four, four, which has been their default system for, for a while. So if you're only going to pick one up front, well, you've got Luis Suarez, Darwin Nunez, even Edison Cavani. You know, I mean, Cavani, both Nunez and Cavani can play wide if, if, if you want them to. But when Uruguay had a look at Nunez wide left in September, it didn't work very well. Um, so there are huge decisions to take for Uruguay. And it's a group that, that leaves a very little margin, margin for error. So, yes, Uruguay are really capable of doing some serious damage, but also they're well capable of going out in the first round. And just finally, and I mean finally, Tim, um, there's obviously a lot of talk over here about off the pitch about the World Cup being in Qatar about human rights issues and I know you're not in every part of South America but like is there that kind of conversation happening in in Brazil or in Argentina or, or no Australia? not really not really I mean it looks from my vantage point to be a, a European stroke Australian issue more than more than anything else there's been there's been very very little talk about these issues they do get mentioned and then it's move on you know but it's you, you get the feeling in that, that there are people in Europe who won't watch this this World Cup in protest. Mm -hmm. And, you know, uh, I haven't picked up any of that over here at all. Uh, Tim, as always, lovely to talk to you. Uh, enjoy the tournament. I know you'll be incredibly busy. I will. I will. And I'm dreaming of December the 19th when normal life can, can, uh, can return. <laughs> um, but if we can put the moral issues to one side, I think we'll have some fun until then. Uh, thank you, Tim. Um, I think these are the dark horses, Barry. 
So do I. So do I, Max. That's that's them screwed. Yeah, Uh, they're they're this year's turkey. Um, I yeah, I I I quite fancy them. Although, as Nick said, that if they get out of the group, could be tricky for them in the next round. But I don't think they would particularly fear Brazil. They they've got a great blend of of youth and experience. They've still got Edinson Cavani, Luis Suarez there. Uh, my worry for them would be that their their defense is a bit old and tired and slow, uh, and that you know they still got Jimenez and Golden in the centre backs, brilliant players, but not not the quickest, and that that might be a problem for them. But uh, I'm very much looking forward to seeing them play. Actually, on the subject of Cavani, Sid Lowe did a, has done a brilliant interview with him. Oh, it's yeah, really yeah. worth reading. And it's it's just, you know, he just sounds like... He's, this is a bit when he says, I just want to, you know, I, I'm paraphrasing here. I might got to be completely wrong, but he just wants to get away from it all and lie under a tree in the woods and just sort of... And and he's got that look where he, it just sort of makes me think of the three musketeers, you know, sort of Portos or Aram or whoever one of them just lying under a tree with a nice little and, hat and on. He said, said in the interview, when he retires, he wants to become a vet. Yeah, which yeah, I, I, I can't see it myself, but I, you know, <laughs> but mind you, it might not be a, a vet. Edison but, you know. <laughs> covered in shite out in the ranch doing TB testing, uh, but good luck to him. Well, I'd like the idea of just turning up, you know, with your, you know, your your, your cat. You know, because he's a bit poorly, and you open the door, and there's Edison Cavani there, ready to serve it. Best surprise I was is when I was watching what was that movie, with the the Stephen Hawking movie, where suddenly just Frank LaBeouf appears as a surgeon or a, or something, and you go, what? That's a you know, my wife is like, oh, that's just a French man being an actor, and I'm like, no, it's Frank LaBeouf. This is ridiculous. Um, Jonathan, where, how do you see Uruguay's uh, chances? Where are their strengths and weaknesses? Yeah, obviously, all the talk, a lot of the talk will be about Luis Suarez, especially for the, the Ghana game, and 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 obviously Cavani we've mentioned there. I think the, I think two of the key players actually will be um, Fede Valverde and, and Bentancur in the centre of midfield, and Valverde has a has a chance to stake his claim as one of the best midfielders in the world. You know, international tournaments are always where maybe players who don't maybe get that recognition for their club have the chance to sort of step out for their country and and show everyone actually, yeah, I'm, I'm a decent player and. Although Fede Valverde is recognised as a top-class midfielder, you know, even Champions League final, I still think that he sort of goes under the radar a little bit with with Real Madrid because obviously he's surrounded by other kind of um, bigger names to a certain extent. So I think he 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 will be crucial to their chances um, there, and and Bentancur as well. I think he's although Spurs haven't been, you know, they've had a mixed season. Spurs they're doing well but not necessarily performing that well. Bentancur has sort of quietly been one of their best players, I think. And um, he's got another. He's got a chance as well, I think, to sort of step out of that maybe shadow of, ironically, son who's in in in, in who he'll face, and and obviously Harry Kane, um, and sort of show himself as a, as a as a top player on the on the world stage. I, I agree with what Barry says about kind of the defense is a little bit aging, and and there's a worry there. But I do think that in international football, that can be mitigated um, a little bit. It's not as maybe fast paced at times international football sometimes. So I think that that. They can be okay there. We, we've seen teams in previous tournaments where they, they, they defend, you know, the experience of, of the defenders can outweigh the kind of, um, you know, any lack of physicality that they lose as they go on. So I'm not massively concerned there, but I, I still think that, uh, yeah, I mean, if they have to play, um, you know, if they have to rely on the defence, then it could be it could be an issue going into the latter stages of, of the tournament. 
Um, but I, I do like the squad. I think it's got a, a decent balance to it. I think they should qualify. Um, but I think that South Korea game, ironically, South Korea is probably a kind of team that they might not like facing, actually quite a technical side who can get forward really, really quickly and, and challenge that that sort of um, the, the older head. So I think that is going to be a huge game, that South Korea game. And then obviously the Ghana, the Ghana game is is one one for the ages. But um, I, I don't think it's, a, we'll talk about them, I guess, now, but I, d- I don't think it's a vintage Ghana and... I think that's going to be motivation rather than necessarily quality that might yeah, might see yeah. Ghana through in that one. Um, let's talk about Ghana. You're right. They they are the lowest ranked team in the tournament, actually, Nick. So like the sort of build up to Uruguay Ghana maybe more than the actual game will be, right? Yeah, well, and sadly, I, I don't think there's any Azamo Jan this time around, is there? To 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 face off against Suarez. Um, yeah, they're coming underneath the radar a bit. I mean, they've got some excellent players. They've got good Premier League experience in, in central midfield. Obviously the um Mohamed Kudis, um who's been well who is at Ajax has done very well this season, come and um, come through the Right to Dream Academy, um come through Nordsjilland in Denmark has a few of their lads, I think, um outstanding young players. So while they didn't qualify that convincingly, well while I've <laughs> I can't say I've put seen them put in many convincing performances when I've seen them recently in, in the last year or two, but I think they have got players who can hurt you. And I think it's going to be, a, it is going to be a motivation that Uruguay game. It is like, um, I was actually, um, I don't want to be, I was there, but I, I, I was at, well, I will be, I was there. Um, I was at that game in, uh, at soccer city in, um, in 2010 as a fan and I had the perfect, perfect seat in the lower tier right on that goal line where Suarez did that and oh. I, I will just never never forget the the howl of absolute anguish around the place which was obviously so pumped for Ghana and I actually think Asamoah Jam when he when he took his penalty in the shootout of that game later was one of the boldest things I've ever seen a footballer do and it totally got washed away in the eventual outcome sadly because there was the, the nice Penenka penalty wasn't there for him Oh, the old striker, um, um, Adver. But yeah, I mean, I don't think we're in for any such quite climactic heroics this time, but it's going to be a great occasion. And I think maybe Ghana can find the extra 5 to 10% for that. They will definitely get a lot of motivation from back home. Um, but I definitely, from the bits and pieces I've seen of Ghana, have not been massively impressed. But the individual talent is there, I think. Um. Yeah, so at least a chance, hopefully, for Jonathan Wilson to complain about the IU brothers uh, if he gets yeah. one of their games. Jim says, did anyone else have a Ramos to PSG moment when they saw Tarek Lamptey in the Ghana squad? Absolutely. Well, that's uh, Ghana, that's been their thing. They've got a lot of players to declare for them in, in recent times. Uh, I think Inaki Williams as well and Dennis Adoy are, are recent call-ups. Uh, Nick can cor- correct me if I'm wrong, but I think I'm right. And, and Tariq Lamptey as well. And I noticed, I read somewhere, apparently um, Otto Addo, who's their manager, who was installed in the wake of their disastrous Cup of Nations uh, performance when they finished bottom of the group and lost to Comoros, he has in his backroom team George Botang and Chris Hewton. Does he? Yes. Um, Chris Hewton, not very attacking manager. No. But, uh, you know. Uh, but love absolutely lovely man should be pointed out. Um, Jeffrey Schlupp not in the squad. Uh, his agent was not very happy about it. Who went onto Snapchat to write, "Shit country, I hope you guys get knocked out. Fuck Ghana, fuck the GFA, 
Uh, Ghanaians are disgraceful. Sick emoji. Don't ever call my phone again. Bunch of people imbecile from the president all the way to the coach. Fuck you. So that's a slightly unmeasured approach. So we're saying for the Afghan qualifiers then. Absolutely, yeah. Yeah, It's Jeffrey Schlupp going, I'm not sure if that's good for my long-term prospects, actually. The thing with Gurner, I think, and and I I do not know if this is the case this time around, so I'm not implying it, but I think historically there's definitely been a bit of a political or factional element to the squad selection itself, perhaps, historically. I don't know if that's happened this time around, but I know it's not necessarily helped some past players and managers hopefully it is a karma ship this time around and if it is they've got the talent yeah i think i think in terms of players to look out for um for ghana although they that one of their biggest issues is the, the goalkeeping situation they've had quite a few goalkeeping injuries and who who starts in goal for them is going to be a, a um is a big massive talking point for them at the moment but i think one of the players to definitely look out for is, is Mohamed kudus a lot of people will know him from ajax uh but he's kind of the he's come out and emerged as the man that Probably everyone's going to be relying upon. Uh, 22 years old, he's been in incredible form for for Ajax this season, and he's a really on his day. He's a top player, and I think that he's the one. Maybe hope. I think I think that there's not much optimism around Ghana as as much as there normally is, um, but he's the one player that maybe gives them that that uh, that hope of kind of maybe they can can do something. And I think their hope their hopes of qualifying um, or even just beating Uruguay are going to come a lot down to Kudus's form. Jonathan, is he likely to play a midfielder up front for them? Yeah, I think he'll play as a in a midfield role and sort of maybe as a sort of pushing forward and but bursting through. Um, up, you know, they they still they still tend to rely on you know the IU the IU brothers uh, in in forward positions, which uh, you just mentioned, Helsley. So some people don't aren't necessarily happy with that. Um, Jordan IU in particular, maybe there seems to be a lot of criticism around his his starting role. Um, but Inaki Williams is probably the one who might start up front. Let's talk about uh, South Korea then. And it's all, Jonathan, about the mask of Son Heung-min, isn't it? It is indeed. And they they are, a, a, you know, they're not a bad, a bad side, to be honest. I think, they, I think they could fancy themselves to get out of this group. Um, like I said, I think the Uruguay game will be, will be, will be key there. And... Obviously, the fitness of Son. I don't actually know if he's if, if if he's necessarily fit. I mean, do we have any updates on that? In terms I saw of... a picture of him in a mask. <laughs> he has been training with a mask, but I don't know how intensely he has been training. Yeah, and he, and obviously he missed their most recent uh, friendly. I believe he didn't. I don't think he got any minutes. Uh, he, def- he definitely didn't start that. So um, that that's the issue. Is you know, obviously they've got a Portuguese coach, uh, Paulo Bento, who. Who that would be an interesting one for him against 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 Portugal. Paulo Bento, you got Portuguese manager, used to manage Portugal and not very well as well. They were you know dumped out of the group stage in 2014. They lost to Germany and, and drew with the USA. So you know he's got that. That's the, that's not the big revenge game I would suggest in this group. But you know it's it's a tiny one. Um, beyond Sun, Nick, um, you know what have they got? Yeah, they're they're not a one man team. Um, I mean, obviously they've done um, done well. In recent years, um, they've got the boy at Napoli at the back who that might be who Jonathan was referring to. I, Kim In Jay, and um, I mean, Napoli, we all know and have heard on, on this pod before, uh, absolutely flying, and he's he's been a decent part of that, I think, at centre back. So that's some real pedigree. Um, we know Huang He Chan from Wolves, don't we? There's a lad at Freiburg in Germany doing very well, I think it's June. Young Wu Young, um, Wu Young, yeah, sorry. Um, 
So they've got some players, you know, operating in and around the top levels. Um, Huang Zhou, I think, at Olympiakos um, scores goals. So there's, it's not just Son, is what I'm saying. Um, they're not a team that we really get to see much of over 90 minutes on television or even on streams over here. So it's it's a bit hard for me to sit here and tell you what everything they do well and badly. But all I'd say is, as as with Senegal and Sadio Mane, it's a very big shame that Son is so seemingly touch and go for the tournament, but there are other options. Um, and in a tournament, you don't know who else might step up. So I think they're definitely a team that's going a bit under the radar and a team that's maybe got a little bit more know-how than um, than people are realising. It's just quite refreshing in a way that there are teams that we don't, because of time differences and just the sheer amount of football, that we don't know everything about. That's, that's the thrill of a World Cup is that you don't come with everything. I'm not saying don't listen to these previews, obviously. They're very important. But like, you know, the, the, you know, some things actually you can just learn while you're watching the game. Anyway, I, uh, that well, is, back, is in, back when I started watching World Cups, you, you knew nothing about most of these teams, like absolutely nothing. There was no internet. There was no world soccer. There was no... 442 magazine there were no podcasts so it was like guys aliens coming from outer space and you just yeah it's really exciting when you don't know there were no no experts like us informing the public lucidly and with great 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 authority on the eve of a tournament wasn't it better when we didn't exist is what (laughs) is what we're trying to say um the only other thing i wanted to point out is and it is Obviously, we all knew they moved it from the summer to the winter because of the weather. But I just sort of saw, you know, Henry Winter videoing, like going for a run around Doha and John Cross tweeting the same thing. And uh, Nicky, you, you're shaking as if, are you not going to tweet yourself jogging around uh, around Doha? But like, it's hot. It's like 30 degrees at, at this time. I mean, I don't know what time it is there now. It's a bit later. Three hours ahead. Yeah. Okay, so what? 11.45. So I guess that it's not going to get much, much hotter than that. But still, that is... You know, Paul Scholes is not going to have a good tournament, everybody. It's too hot for him. No, I I think it's going to get cooler. Um, I think by the end of next week, it it gets to a chilly 28 or 29 degrees. Um, and and then maybe once we hit December, it plummets a bit. But yeah, it, it's, it, is, it is hot. And you do wonder whether some teams or some stars of football are uh, going to find that especially in the group stages but but then again it's, it's not like we've not had hot world cups before um russia was searing at some points for example um and a lot of others i i can think of but it could well have um have an impact better i will probably not be joining crossy for his morning job i will find a uh, job i will find other ways to um exercise all right then uh, that, that'll do for uh today um thank you nick enjoy a safe trip and enjoy it over there thank you speak soon no doubt uh, uh, thank you jonathan thanks very much uh cheers baz thanks um uh, this is going out tomorrow i think barry so i'll see you tonight in hackney um <laughs> but but that has happened by the time people listen to this but it'll be very nice to see you in person um and uh, look, that'll do for our previews part three is the final of our specials in the lead up to this world cup today we focus on the role and treatment of women in qatar welcome back to part three of the guardian football weekly our, our fourth and final special in the series uh, today we focus on women's rights uh, the constitution in qatar says women are equal before the law uh, but is that really the case what are our lives really like for women there 
How much does it differ for expats, migrant workers and the Qatari population? And how does it compare with the rights and experiences of women across the region? It's a conversation that's happening far less than other serious issues that we've already discussed on the pod. We felt it was really important to have it. Uh, we have a panel today. Uh, Rothna Begum is women's rights researcher for the Middle East and North Africa region for Human Rights Watch. Rothna, thanks so much for your time. Thank you. Uh, Louise Donovan is a reporter for Fuller Project, focusing on gender issues and labour investigations. Hi, Louise. Hi, Ian. And Football Weekly's guiding light and moral compass, Philippe Claire joins us. Hello, my friend. Hello, Max. Hello, Louise. Hello, Rothner. So a very a sort of basic question to begin with. How do you, how do you feel about the fact the World Cup is in, in Qatar, Louise? I, I think it's hard to ignore uh, everything that has been coming out um, around workers' rights. You know, there's been a lot of allegations. There seems to be a lot of problems, you know, not just with women, but, you know, sort of with LGBTQI people. There's a lot of issues and I personally find it quite hard to ignore. So when FIFA um, gave them the the right to host it in 2022, which is 12 years later, they just didn't say anything about um, imposing labour rights um, conditions on them or human rights issues. And yet, even at that time, you know, I had been documenting abuses against migrant workers. I had cases of terrible kinds of prosecution of women for so-called love crimes, um, as well as women who had been confined in their homes by their fathers. And there was no way for them to turn to at the time either. So it was you know, for some surprising, others quite shocking. But for me, the big issue was this is all going to happen with no conditions on uh, improving the rights conditions for people in the country. Rothna, how does the situation, and, and Louise, how does the situation in Qatar for women um, differ from the situation of women, say, in Saudi Arabia, where, you know, people know about the repression of, uh, um, you know, act- women activists? We had on, on the Football Weekly, we had Lina Lathlul who told us about her sister Lujane and, um, and the absolute hell that she had to go through. Uh, is the situation comparable in Qatar for women? You know, I started working on Saudi Arabia a long time ago. But when I began doing research on the situation for women in Qatar, I knew that they had very similar rules or some similar situations. But I was actually quite surprised and taken aback at just how many rules existed on their lives and uh, just how extensive the male guardianship rules were as well, and that some of it was comparable. And in some ways, they had become worse because we had actually achieved some progress in Saudi in recent years. So, for instance, um, in Qatar, what we found is that they must obtain, women in Qatar must obtain permission from their male guardians to marry, uh, to study on government scholarships, work in many government jobs, travel abroad until certain ages and to receive some forms of reproductive health care. One of you mentioned love crimes there. Louise, what is what does that mean? So this is the issue of um, the country's kind of penal code criminalises sex outside of marriage. And so, you know, if a woman does decide to report sexual assault, police often tend to believe men, they often tend to not believe the women, say rights groups, you know, so instead of siding with, when men claim, then claim it was consensual, um, this can lead to the survivor being prosecuted, you know, and, and this has happened. There have been cases of this where, you know, women have been sentenced to, to lashings and to sort of seven years in prison because they have reported their own sexual assault 
the men say it's consensual and then the women are the people. The women are at fault, essentially. And it is a deterrent. You know, it is a deterrent, say, rights groups. You know, women will be disinclined to report that stuff because of the high risks that, you know, could be played out if they do. Of course. I mean, it's it's hard enough for women to report those kind of things anyway, right, in in, in the UK, isn't it? And so, so to have that extra layer of, of like, this falling back on you is... I can't imagine the torment that would be. I don't know, Roth, if you've spoken to women who've been through that. Yes, that's right. So I've documented cases of women who have essentially faced sexual violence and found themselves being prosecuted instead. One woman talked about how, uh, and these are often, just to explain, with love, so-called love crimes, or consensual sex, this disproportionately falls on women because of the fact that they're the ones who will be reporting sexual violence and can be accused, but also because pregnancy serves as evidence of the crime or the so-called crime. Um, so it's women who are disproportionately impacted by this offence, but also women migrant domestic workers are the most impacted. The cases I documented of women involved a, a Filipino domestic worker who said that she had been raped by another fellow worker from a different house. He jumped inside uh, into the garden, went into her little maid room and had raped her. She had called the police. The police, uh, she was confined to the house. She actually had to uh, be, um, climb out the window. The police asked her to climb out the window for her to give the report. And, uh, and initially they took her report, found the guy. But at that point he said, yes, I had sex with her, but it was consensual. On that basis, they then began to interrogate her to find to on the on believing that they had had a relationship and then went through her phone and found his number in her phone. And she said, well, the, the other domestic work had also been using her phone. So maybe they knew each other, but she definitely did not know him. And then she was arrested. So she was held in a cell. Not, she didn't know what was going on. Four months later, she asked the prison guard, like, why am I being held? I reported the rape and I'm in prison right now. What's going on? And she said, oh well, you, you've been charged with a love crime. And it was only at that moment that she knew what was going on. And, you know, so we have cases of women who talk about reporting the crime of rape and finding themselves being prosecuted for the crime of consensual sex. And when we talk about the crime of consensual sex, we see how the authorities' understanding of consent is very broad. Simply knowing your offender is enough for the authorities to believe that you were in a relationship with them. One very striking thing about uh, about Qatar is the really high proportion of women who actually are in secondary and uh, education and in universities compared to men. And uh, does that mean that they get um, same access to the workplace for, for on, on one hand? And also, is there, within those women, we are very well educated, um, is there a... Uh, a desire and ambition to to organize as women? Are there women groups, for example, in those universities? So in Qatar, absolutely, there are far more female graduates than male graduates in the country. So women are really breaking barriers in the country. And really, we've really seen progress in the last 20 years where, you know, so many women are highly educated. But yet their unemployment rate is double that of men. So they do face severe barriers when it comes to employment. And one of the issues I found was that women going into government jobs, so trying to get into the civil service, many of these government ministries were asking women for guardian permission before they hire them. Now, this isn't a law. There's no rule on this. And yet government ministries were insisting on this. Not all of them, but many of them. 
The world's best players are coming to Qatar this year, inspiring boys and girls alike. When we talk about football, we're talking about fair play and inclusion. So women as fans, women as supporters, and there are Qatar women who are big, big football fans, right? So it's not divorced from them at all. The issue we have is that women in Qatar face severe discrimination in law and in practice in a country that has not done a huge amount progressing for their rights. You know, you know, one question asked earlier was, are there any women's groups in the country? Well, not, there are no women's rights groups. And that's because Qatar makes it really difficult for people to register associations or organizations because they ban anything that's deemed to be political. It's very difficult for women to also talk about women's rights online or in person. We've had women talk about how cybersecurity has summoned them. Uh, for talking about women's rights online, um, where they're interrogated and then they have to sign pledges saying that they will stop uh, talking about women's rights. And so we do see this issue where Qatar is, pro is going out of its way, proactively pro preventing a progressive realization of women's rights in the country, and at the same time emboldening people who are more conservative to harass and intimidate women into silence as well. And I think that question of why should football fans care? I mean, I think if if you're going to Qatar and you're going to be there, I mean, you're you're going to be me. So I report on migrant women uh, in the Gulf, and I have been reporting on migrant women in Qatar. Um, and these are women. I've spoken to women in the hospitality sector, in the hotels. So if you're going to Qatar, you're going to be probably be meeting these women. They're going to be they're going to be cleaning your rooms. You know, they're going to be they're going to be taking your food order, your dinner order, your drinks order. You know, you you will be meeting these women. They're not just faceless kind of characters, you know, and there's been a huge spike in the number of workers working in the hospitality sector to cater for all these fans. You know, these women, they're, they're vital. They're needed for the in infrastructure of the World Cup. You know, they're a big part of making this tournament happen. And I, and I will say through, through the interviews that I've, the women that I've spoken to, you know, I've heard kind of a range of issues. They've worked in luxury hotels over the last couple of years. The thing that I heard again and again from the interviews, speaking to these women, is that at the end of the day, the guest is always right. You know, they always put the guest first. And I think that's just good information for people to have going over to Qatar, just to be aware that you are viewed as first, the staff in the hotel are viewed as second, and just, you know, have that information and just and be with it and, and know that you're going to meet these women face to face and the kind of conditions that they they've said that they faced in the past. Rothner, the, the, there is a fear amongst the LGBTQ plus community that um, sort of any any sort of protests in Qatar or, or any sort of sort of uh, very visual support for that community will actually result in recriminations when we've all left Qatar and we're thinking about something completely different. I wonder if there is a similar feeling amongst women. It is an issue that is talked about much less, actually. You know, when you look at the headlines, it's, um, you know, migrant workers, mainly male. It is uh, the LGBTQ plus community because of the, the laws there. I wonder what the feeling is amongst, well, for women in Qatar. When I was doing this research uh, on male guardianship on women, a lot of the women were worried about even speaking to me, in part because 
they were worried that it was actually going to make things worse. That if we reported on their situation, they may actually make it more regressive and more difficult for women. And that seems outrageous because normally, you know, if you have an issue of human rights or women's rights issues, you're supposed to report on it to say, look, this is a problem and here's how we want to fix it. But for women, the thing that they had to contend with was it was it going to make their situation worse? And it's still an issue right now where women, you know, are wondering and contemplating, do I speak to the media about this or, or is it going to make it more difficult for me? And so, you know, women, there are very few women who are willing to go public. Um, and if they are, they're going to have to think about how they do in an anonymous kind of way and in a safe kind of way. And that's a really, really hard thing to do. Um, and some women have decided just not to do it all together because they'd rather wait for the World Cup to be over and then think about how do we sort of push these things. Other women had wanted the World Cup attention to at least highlight their plight and see if there's ways that they could get some reforms before the World Cup happens. But we've seen so far that the authorities do not want to address the problem of women's rights. They simply deny that there is any problem at all, even though a lot of these policies are uh, are actually on their websites. It's it's there. It's very clear that they are doing this, and a lot of it are practices that they could easily tomorrow just stop altogether. Um, and yet the authorities are just do not want to talk about women's rights issues. It's an issue that they are very much a, a red line about, at least in, in public. But we are hoping that even with whether or not the World Cup, you know, when it happens and following it happening, that the authorities finally come to reckon with what they're doing because they are an outlier right now within the region. They are one of the most regressive countries on women's rights. And when women have and there's lots of women have achieved much in the country, but that's of their own doing. They they did it navigating these rules and trying to get their fathers on side and managed to make incredible progress, but they should not be forced into that situation. Right now, Qatar has incredibly discriminatory rules that is far worse than even its closest Gulf neighbors. And they should really repeal that to allow women to fully engage in the in society as well as in the economy. Look, it's not the only socially conservative country in the world, Louise, and and like how how will rights of women improve? It has to come with from within, right? Doesn't it? Yeah, and I mean, speaking specifically to the work that I've done around women in the hospitality sector, I mean, you know, rights groups say that you know certain things need to be done. You know, assessments need to be conducted in order to understand who exactly their female migrant workforce are and what factors might make them susceptible to gender-based violence. You know, management need to be given training to spot signs of harassment and they need to communicate effectively with this entire workforce, particularly subcontracted female employees who tend to be often at higher risk because there's less oversight of who they are and what they're doing. And hotel brands need to be clear on reporting processes, you know, next steps in terms of safeguarding, you know, how are they going to be protected as well as psychosocial and medical support. And one thing which we should really stress is that some of those companies Western companies. They're not all Qatari companies. There are some very big hotel groups which have got European shareholders run by European managers and these people should be named and shamed. What do you think the experience will be for, for you know, female fans coming to the World Cup? One of the big issues we have for any major sporting event around the world is that there is an increase in sexual violence. Like simply having millions of people turning up means that the level of sexual violence just goes up. But the problem in Qatar is that the laws criminalize consensual sex, which means that women who uh, report sexual violence can find themselves being prosecuted instead. 
women who turn up as pregnant but unmarried can find it really difficult also to access sexual and reproductive health care unless they can prove that they are married. Now, we're calling on the authorities to um, you know, lift these rules um, and ensure that women can um, actually report sexual violence without fe fearing prosecution and be able to access all forms of sexual and reproductive health care without needing to prove that they're married. Now, the authorities may do this. We're seeing reports now coming out saying that the authorities might have this happen during the course of the five weeks of the World Cup. So, But we need them to be public about this because if they don't, then women are going to be deterred. They're going to fear actually reporting it to the police or even just to go get emergency contraception or go to a health clinic to get testing and treatment, which is what they will most likely do in the event of, of facing such sexual violence. And the other thing is that the authorities need to keep that going forward. Just because the World Cup is over doesn't mean that sexual violence won't continue to happen. And that means that they need to get rid of these laws altogether and ensure full access to reproductive and sexual health care for all women in Qatar. Ratha, thank you so much for your time. We really appreciate it. Thank you. Same to you, Louise. Thank you. It's it's like it's really important conversation. It's not one that I expected we were going to have, but I, I think it's really been really worthwhile. Thank you for your time. Thanks, Max. Uh, thank you, Philippe, as always. Thank you, Max. When we reached out to the Qatari government with some of the allegations in this episode, a spokesperson told us that they were extremely disappointed by our decision to, in their words, deliberately exclude Qatari and Arab voices. They said that many of the allegations put forward are categorically false and paint an inaccurate picture of the reality in Qatar. They told us that women are vital to Qatari society and they have continued to introduce and expand policies to ensure women play an active role in business, government and society. They said more women in Qatar are enrolled in higher education than men, women have equal pay and are entitled to the same training and promotion opportunities as their male counterparts in the government sector and that Qatari women occupy prominent positions in government as ministers, ambassadors and CEOs. In terms of freedoms, a government spokesperson told us that marriages in Qatar can only take place with the women's consent, that Qatari women have been eligible to vote in elections for as long as men, that they are responsible for their own finances, and that they can drive without restriction from the age of 18. They also told us that Qatari law prioritises the safety and well-being of all women, that assault is criminalised under the penal code, and access to justice is a guaranteed right for all through the Qatari court system. They also said that Qatar's constitution prohibits all forms of discrimination against women. And they told us the allegation that women have been sentenced to lashings or seven-year prison sentences because they've reported their own sexual assault is baseless and rejected in the strongest possible terms. A statement on behalf of the Supreme Committee for Delivery and Legacy said that they were committed to delivering an inclusive and discrimination-free FIFA World Cup experience that is welcoming, safe and accessible to all participants, attendees and communities in Qatar and around the world. They said that everyone is welcome in Qatar, but we are a conservative country and any public display of affection, regardless of orientation, is frowned upon. We simply ask for people to respect our culture. We also reached out to FIFA with specific allegations made here, but they chose not to respond directly. They told us previously that FIFA's position on inclusivity and the protection of human rights is unequivocal and that Qatar as a host country is fully aware of its responsibility to adhere to FIFA's expectations and requirements on human rights, equality and non-discrimination. This part was produced by Joel Grove. Our executive producer was Max Sanderson. 